0: What can be learned from a story, woving out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, "Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes Some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I am delighted this afternoon to be joined by Raúl Burbano. He's a journalist. He's the director of Common Frontiers, and he's also a member of the Colombian Working Group. Thank you so much for joining us, Raúl.
1: Thank you very much for having us. It's always a pleasure to be on your show.
0: In some ways, disheartening that every time we meet is about some kind of you know, new layer of impunity. And and a reminder of one of my favorite poets, you know, Eduardo Galeano said, does history repeat itself or are the repetitions only penance for those of us who refuse to remember, you know, or have been incapable of listening? So I wonder if we could start the conversation by talking a little bit about the new layers of impunity that we're experiencing that people in Colombia are living with and, and to perhaps deconstruct a little bit. Stay naked. I hope that you can take it. What can be learned from a story? woving out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness. I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning, through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes, Some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living.
1: You know,
0: not only the senate of this problem, you know, where it all sort of is rooted but also what we as citizens can do
1: absolutely i mean thank you for that question and i think it's just very inspiring with also what's happening there's always wherever there's sort of i guess chaos and challenge uh there's also an opportunity and what we're seeing at least in colombia and a whole bunch of other countries in latin america is that there's a strong awakening i guess from people uh you know whether it's in colombia in the last couple of days in chile uh, in ecuador where you know thousands and thousands of people are taken to the streets, you know, also in Bolivia not too long ago, you know, to demand you know respect for human rights, for democracy, uh, you know, an end to the austerity and neoliberal policies that many of these governments, specifically just recently in Colombia with the Duque government, they're trying to impose in order to salvage their countries from you know, I, I would say the capitalist onslaught, which is, you know, the economic crisis which a lot of these countries find themselves in. So, you know, it, it, definitely there's a reaction from the states and often it's violent uh, and it's repressive and it's menacing, but but it also forces people to come together and to struggle in a wonderful way. And we see that today in Colombia where people are out on the street en masse, you know, singing, dancing, music, fighting, kind of pushing back against what is a very difficult situation. But so far, you know, is turning around where the people are, in essence, you know, are starting to take control. It gives us a lot of hope and energy for the future where a community, you know, very diverse, for example, in Colombia today, it's sort of organic. There's nobody really needing that. Everybody's a part of it, teachers, labor organizations, indigenous, Afro-Columbians. They all have very diverse uh, demands, very diverse visions, but the, the most important part is that they're all together today out on the streets, you know, pushing back against what is, a, you know, a very you know, fascist and oppressive government. And uh, and it's given a lot of hope in terms of that there finally could be some change, uh, again, in countries like Colombia and Latin America, where, you know, we've seen a bit of a, a very difficult situation with a lot of right-wing uh, governments coming into power to impose neoliberal policies, austerity, and, you know, anti-democratic policies like we see in Colombia today.
0: I think the word recordar for me was it's the word that, that means to awake, you know, and also it means to remember. So perhaps we can um, not only celebrate our ability to continue to remember despite the violence that we are people, that we deserve to live with dignity, and, and to honor that this comes with a price, right? So I want to talk a little bit about the kind of price that we are seeing exerted on the populace on the people of Colombia, you know, because as of this week, right, this is the second week where we've seen the government of President Iván Duque, you know, not only militarizing life, right, responding with bullets to people's call for, you know, <laughs> not only an arrest to the neoliberalist agenda, but also and a stop to the continuous violence against workers.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I think we're we're starting to see this a lot more and more, especially with the pandemic and the, and the crisis that's taking place through the neoliberal model, is that governments are looking for people to kind of shoulder the costs of 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 you know the social, economic, and political crisis that an environmental crisis that we're going to. But at the same time, they want to let corporations off the hook. And I think it's really important when we're seeing you know movements across Latin America, North America, and other countries. That are starting to challenge that and and come together and like you said you know they it's done in very different ways and the struggles are very different and they look you know completely um you know maybe look odd to other folks for example you know big dance parties in colombia on the streets when there's massive tanks on the on, on the on the streets uh you know shooting at people as you said but people are, are singing songs people are playing instruments it's really incredible how people are, in essence, are creating their own paradise within a bit of chaos uh, in order to show their resistance and in order to show their uh, opposition to to really what countries have been doing, which is just uh, you know destroying the environment, stealing the resources, creating a precarity that is unimaginable you know over the last little, little, little bit. For example, Colombia is one of the most unequal country in, in the in Latin America. About you know, according to most estimates, conservative estimates, it's about 45 to 50 percent. But we you know the reality is a lot higher. Probably about 60 percent of Colombians, that's about 27 you know million people, live in poverty. Although Colombia has been held up as a model, a great model of democracy, a great model of economic prosperity, uh, for many years. So it just goes to show us the contradictions of what we hear. Uh, in real life, and then what's really happening on the ground for people in Colombia.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the way that we have not only been learning resilience as we deal with the calamities of 30 years plus, you know, neoliberalism and and dictatorship and militarization of our streets, uh, but also how do we keep ourselves engaged and energized by the by the dream of creating a society with justice?
1: That's a good question. And I think sort of the, the pandemic, you know, that we're all living in right now has kind of forced us to rethink our lives. Everybody before was really busy with work and continuously, you know, being kept busy with all their hobbies and shopping and all the all the stuff that people do. And now with the pandemic we kind of have to force to retreat and, and start kind of thinking inward and really what's important to us and what we're seeing and what you see is that, you know, everybody's focused now, you're more at home, you're more, you know, around nature, you know, you're less being able to go, for example. People are always supposed to spend their pastime in malls. Now most people are going for walks, right? In parks, uh, in nature. So I, I think it's really reconnecting to the roots of where most of us get the most joy and satisfaction, whether we kind of think of that consciously or subconsciously, which is within our community. Within our family, within our friends, and living within those spaces, and remembering that those are where we get the most nourishment, the most knowledge. And as you mentioned, and and within that, building that historical context, so we don't forget where we come from and, and where we are. Uh, and for example, like there's you know millions of Colombians today across Canada, across you know Europe and the world, who today might have little connection or contact with Colombia, but yet. Today are on the streets, you know, calling for support for Colombians who are on the front lines against the 2K government because of repressive uh, policies. Are coming together for something that they have, you know, really in Toronto probably have not done before. As an example, and in other cities across Canada, it's wonderful to see a couple thousand Colombians from diverse backgrounds as a community coming together and and kind of celebrating who we are as diverse people politically, socially, economically, but yet under sort of one roof and, and, and celebrating who we are and celebrating the struggles and also celebrating the dream that everybody really wants the same dream, which is, you know, that we live in harmony with the earth, that we live in harmony with one another, and that we build a collective a community where we can all prosper and, and live life in a way that's meaningful for all of us in whatever that context is.
0: You know, one of the things that became um, very clear to me as a child was that we live in multiple multiple worlds all the time. As an indigenous person, you live with this uh, call to be in connection, not just uh, with your parents, but also with, with nature, right? With the... I remember as a child, it was very common to walk by yourself. You know, there were trees. And and now after the war, of course, the bombs and all the things that destroyed uh, made it very untenable for us to be able to walk and let alone to be able to walk alone. Uh, So, you know, what we lose, I think, is not just when we become... Uh, forgetful about the kind of violence that allows, you know, one fifth of the population of the world to consume, you know, eighty percent of all the resources and to, you know, pollute the world with plastic and with cars. Right? When we become forgetful that this kind of lifestyle has a cost and it's, that cost is exerted not on the people who are buying their trinkets here, but on people thousands of miles away. You know. So I wonder if we talk about, you know, not just what has naturalized this level of impunity as we see with the government, but perhaps the... The connection, because it's really important to remember that Colombia is one of those places where it was most unlikely for you to see a revolutionary uprising of the people. You know, there's seven military bases in Colombia, a large support by U.S. You know, money to support the military there and the and the government. So it it's very unlikely. You know, you, you just the level of repression that people face to speak up, and for years now, Colombia has been known as one of the most dangerous plays for union activists. So how is this possible, and, and, and why is it important for us to remember those facts?
1: You know, the, the capitalist model does a great job of sort of severing the ties that we have with each other, with the environment, with, you know, the things that are really important to us, and we become focused on, you know, consumption and materialism, and I and I think within you know the Colombian context is you know the, the strong influence of of U.S. involvement as you mentioned you know the militarization of Colombia through bases has become a, a key kind of component for you know in, investment around the world. So there's been lots of you know Canadian investment in mining and other you know oil and gas and from other sectors in the U.S. and it's really around creating a a country like Colombia that. That you know so is stable from a capital perspective where investment come in, and then it could also be used as a way to uh, I, I guess uh, you know kind of subjugate or to marginalize anything else in the region. For example, you know there's there's the talk of Colombianization of you know the military in other countries where Colombia is great at teaching you know military personnel in other countries like in Chile, for example, how to how to you know defeat uh, protest type of thing on the streets. So the way that Colombia has been sort of divided, and all those people don't see themselves as, you know, the, like part of that, you know, the Bolivarian family or the Latin American family in terms of Colombia, because it's been so different politically, social and economically. And I think, as you mentioned, no one really expected that the kind of social uprising that's so spontaneous uh, in Colombia. It's, it's kind of, it has been a culture of war, right? Colombia, Colombians in general have been at war with whether it's you know the guerrilla, with communism, the war against drugs, the war against terrorism, you know it's been it's been it's been a country that has been I would say almost traumatized with the fact that we must destroy a, a, an internal enemy that has been obviously created as you know for a, a political sense, and you know and it's never dawned on folks that hey this is a repressive kind of environment and, and world that we're living in, but you know what's happening today in Colombia you know, is not new. There's been quite a lot of social movement uprisings over the last couple of years. So I would say this is a continuation of it. The difference that's happening today from, let's say, last year when the Minga and the Paro Nacional was taking place is it, that it's, it's so large and it's so broad, right? It encompasses more than just the political actors or social movements that historically, like the indigenous movement, the Afro-Columbian, the labor movement, that have historically been very active in Colombia. But now we're talking about, you know, just your average folks. People who have realized that I can no longer we can no longer live in this kind of model where the government now is going to tax me on you know basic services that I have when i I'm barely surviving, where pensioners, pension is going to be taxed, you know yeah. how are they supposed to live, where public sector workers, this is part of you know the tax um, you know components that Dukin imposes that he was going to freeze public sector wages for you know five, six years. All to pay for the economic crisis that really comes from, for example, an unlimited amount of spending on military in order to fight all the wars that I mentioned, right? So I think that it's important we see that connection that you know Colombia and Colombians see themselves as part of the larger Latin American family in terms of the world that there's a struggle, and that struggle needs to connect with others, and you and you see that now in the I mean in the spontaneous and so and so large. Um, protests across the country that you know it's very difficult to see the violence by the state uh, but it's also very inspirational to see that within Colombia you know so much of this has come forward now finally in a unified voice that's saying basta enough with the violence enough with the anti democratic policies by the state and it almost feels like there is like a you know an immense shift that has erupted in Colombia And for, you know, the first time in a long time, I'm hoping that there is going to be a real significant political change because in the past, the government has been able to sort of, you know, undermine all these movements by saying, sure, no problem, we will engage in dialogue and then sort of let that energy dissipate and then move on and then we get another set of repression. But it feels like this time, potentially in Colombia, there is going to be a shift and we will finally see... You know, a a true democracy that represents the people, that cares about the Colombians, that seeks to protect the environment, and that really shifts away from that militarization and war mindset that has been, in my mind, sort of, you know, imposed on people through fear and violence.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the different movements, the social movements that are not only alive but thriving in, you know, Latin America and in particular in the southern region? Because we have seen so much struggle in this region. We've seen how the Mingus, as you point out, you know, indigenous-led movements have really awakened not just the imagination of people, right, but also their responsibility. That we have a responsibility to coexist and to coexist well with life,
1: and that—that's and true what you say. I mean, the the indigenous movements, the Afro movements, you know, across the Americas, in Colombia, for specifically the Afro-Colombian groups, have been, you know, at the front lines for, you know, I would say, you know, 500 years since, you know, colonization, in the struggle to protect the lands, you know, in order to protect their culture. Uh, and it's you know they've done they've done this against you know uh, colonizers, uh, whether it's from the region or from other countries, whether it's from multinational corporations, whether it's from you know paramilitaries, drug, uh, you know crime, but really it's the, those communities, the indigenous communities, the Afro communities, who have maintained you know a strong portion of their culture, a family of collective struggle, and continue that struggle today. And I think that, you know, they, they have been, from my experience, they have been, an ex- uh, have given people hope. They have been a sense of, of incredible strength and, and fighting that people look to, to those communities as a form of, you know, like, for example, like in like Indigena La Guardia, La Indigena Guardia in parts of Colombia, where, you know, tradition they're using their traditional ways uh, and moving away from sort of the capitalist, you know, or, or or the judicial or the democratic systems that we're used to in the West and are going back to their traditions there are traditions which are much more based on collective, which are much more based on you know, sort of an equity type of model where it's not about punishment or it's not about economic punishment, but rather is how do we strengthen the community, right? How do we better people... Uh, rather than punish them and put them in jail and build a healthier society that is not just important for humans, but it's also linked to the environment. You know, for example, when when, when they look at what's good for, for the future, they don't think of just what's good for short term or for themselves. They, You know, in, in some of the indigenous cultures, they think of what's what's better for the seventh generation. And that's how long term they're thinking in terms of when they think of the environment. They're saying, we don't care, for example, to have in some communities, uh, to have mining, for example, if we're just going to reap the benefits for the next five, ten years, and then we don't have our land, what's the use of mining projects, for example, uh, in a lot of these communities? And and often people in the West don't understand that. They, would, they don't say, well, why wouldn't you just want to have a job and make some money, and then you can buy all the materialism in a very short period of time? But they're always thinking, you know, long term, at least, you know, seven generations down. And I think those are the communities that all across you know, Latin America, the Americas who have been on the front lines, you know, through culture, through song, through a historical connection with these issues that many communities now are sort of, you know, following and taking the lead and working as closely as possible with uh, in order to maintain those struggles.
0: You know, it's not only inspiring to imagine that we can create a world where we are in coexistence, you know, where we are being responsible, you know, to be able to respond. We didn't create capitalism, at least not you and I, but we are responsible for transforming, for changing the way our society is organized, for the way, you know, uh, the land is cared for, for the way our children are nourished and educated, right? To To grow up respecting, you know, nature, respecting other people. I I wonder what's the the lesson here and how do we uh, not only move forward in a way that brings us all uh, in step, you know, to co-creating the
1: world we want to see? You know, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, there is a finite resources in the world in terms of water, trees, and we can't just continue to consume at the pace we are because, as you said... The inevitable challenges we're going to see is, you know, the environmental destruction, the impacts of, of climate change, and even, as you said, the impacts to health, right? You know, these the viruses that we're seeing and the illnesses that people are being impacted, a lot of this is due to the impact of on the environment, as you said, and the way we're destroying and the way we're destroying our culture and the bonds in which we live in. And the only focus is really on materialism and production of technology that in many senses, killing us because now most people don't even go for walks anymore due to, due to their time they spend on their computers and their phones. I mean, if it wasn't for the pandemic, you know people would still probably wouldn't be out at all. Um, so it, it's really important that we see that that need to continue to remember where we come from, where we're where we're linked to, and how we can build towards a better a better future. And the link to community for me, I think, is always the connection. Right, the link to community and the link to the environment is where we remember where we come from, and where we can go. And and as we build our community and we fight within that community, it could be for you know, you know, from a budgeting perspective to making sure that you know stop signs are, you know, the right the right signs are in your neighborhood, you know, to protect your children, to protect your family. Uh, You know, to me, that's where. You know, everything kind of starts and begins and then we build from there and then we connect that there are struggles around the world that are just as important and are related to what we do. And I think, for example, you know, people are starting to realize, especially workers, as you were saying, that we need to remember that, you know, our struggles are all linked. So as workers, for example, you know, before the free trade agreements, there was, you know, the manufacturing sector in Canada was very strong. People were getting paid well. They had union jobs making lots of money, and then we started to get into free trade agreements. And so what ended up happening is corporations said, well, why would I, why do we want to pay, you know, auto workers in Canada so much money when the United States when we can just ship those jobs to Mexico? And then workers in Canada started realizing, well, wait a minute, you know, is the fault the Mexican workers or is it the system? In some cases, workers, you know, would blame uh, the Mexican workers. But I think with time, they realized that, hey, we're all workers and we're all struggling. And if we better the conditions of all of us, and we can all win collectively but when we only struggle to better ourselves for example which is obviously important we all need you know to struggle but when we only limit those struggles to ourselves and we don't link them to the national or the international then in the end we still end up losing because you know the corporations will definitely take advantage of that so the, the problems we have are systematic and international and the solutions then have to be as well international and and i think solidarity is the key to that I think the solution to you know most of the issues we have politically, uh, economically is solidarity when we build links of solidarity in any struggle globally is when we can win. For example, as we see today, international solidarity with Colombia is incredible. All over Canada, I've seen thousands of people on the streets to you know to to be in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Colombia is the same as with you know I'm seeing today thousands of people in solidarity with Palestinians. Who today are feeling you know bombs being dropped uh, upon them? So it's incredible to see the solidarity, and that's what builds the links of struggle. And when we and when we struggle together, we build those true links of solidarity.
0: You know, I was um, talking to some uh, co-workers, and you know, universities are very interesting places because this is where the people with most privilege. Coexist, right? They come there because they can afford to pay for higher education, and a lot of people also don't have privilege. They simply work really hard and have multiple jobs to pay. But my point is that you get to university and you think that you would feel like so powerful and able to uh, affect change. And a lot of the times, these are exactly the places where people are most uh, frightened. You know, to take action, they just think, "Oh, I have to wait till I have a right, till I get a right." And I wonder if you could just perhaps remind us, right, of that spirit of moving with others and co-creating with others and realizing we don't have to get it right. We just have to work with others so that we're moving and, and acting in reciprocity. We're not just being the lone ranger trying to save the world.
1: I, I get that sense all the time as well, and, and it's in different settings. You know, It could be the academic set, set, settings. Sometimes you see it in the labor movement. Sometimes you see it in, you know, whatever movement. You're in the NGO movement. You know, really, what often ends up happening is when we disconnect ourselves from the struggle, then it becomes theoretical. And I think that's where the challenge is. The key in order to build that true reciprocity and solidarity within anywhere. You know, in my experience lies within the labor movement is when we're in struggle together. So it's, it's it's not just good enough to put out, for example, a statement and say, we are in solidarity with people struggling, but it's when you realize that you are in those same struggles and then you struggle as well. I mean, I think a perfect example is Colombia. I mean, there's many reasons why people are out on the streets today in Colombia, but the main, one of the main reasons is to fight an austerity agenda, like a neoliberal austerity agenda, that is the same austerity agenda that we fight here in Canada. That people and that workers fight all over the world. You know, the people in Colombia want jobs. They want them to end the precarity. They want to have access to health. They want to have access to to the vaccines, basic things that is the same thing that we all want here in Canada. And if we forget that, that, that you know, they're struggling for the same reasons that we struggle. And if they win, if they can beat back austerity and austerity agenda, which at the moment they have, they, they've forced the Duque government to retreat. On, on its agenda, which is an incredible feat based on the amount of violence and repression that they have experienced, then it it's, a, it's a sign for us here in Canada and for people, you people, know, I would say in the Global North and maybe in the universities and in the areas that we, when we see people are afraid to struggle, that it shows us that people can overcome all these adversaries with a lot more difficulty than we have. You know, we're fortunate in the North that we have a lot of resources, we have a lot of financial capital, and we could do a lot. But often, as you said, is that fear, you know, that fear that will I lose my job, that fear will I lose my title, will I not get that next promotion, that sometimes separates us from really, you know, building those close links with struggles. And I think the key is that we realize that, you know, we're all workers, most of us. And and we link those struggles together. and the reason why we support we would support Colombians who are fighting a neoliberal austerity agenda is for the same reason that I would fight a neoliberal austerity agenda here in Canada. And I think when we build those kind of links when the struggles are joined, you know I'm not just in solidarity with Colombians, I'm in solidarity with myself, I'm in solidarity with my community. and together we build those links of solidarity, which are key uh, in order to really understand and struggle together. so I think continuing to struggle even if you're in the university level we we can't disconnect ourselves it can't be theoretical it has to be a practical application of struggle which i think is, is the root of how you build solidarity
0: thank you so much for being with us and not only um inviting us into engagement with life cycle you know because in many ways our struggles are inviting cycles of life, you know, a new vision of what can be, you know, a life that is interdependent, in solidarity, in mutual reciprocity. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, Workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylviarichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations.
1: You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you. The groove is you.